Hello and welcome to Rasslin Memories. I'm Glenn Broggett here on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We're available online to the masses at RadioNorthland.org where you can listen to us live and in the moment or if you missed whatever due to whatever, you can check out the archives. RadioNorthland.org, the Rasslin Memories page is there. Uh, we're now into our 10th year. Well, actually celebrating 10 years. We're heading into our year 11. It's just been such an amazing ride and lots of great interviews with legends who are not with us uh, to, uh, anymore uh, who have passed on through the years. Lots of good interviews are available at uh, RadioNorthland.org slash Memories. Glenn Broggett along with uh, my co-host back this week. He was on assignment and he gave us a really good guest uh, today deep in the heart of Texas, uh, the Grizzle vet Mike McCurdy. Mike, uh, glad to have you back on. Uh, it was too bad that you uh, didn't get a chance to uh, be, take part in the interview last week. Uh, George Shire and I did with John Arezzi, but it's good to have you back and we have definitely more than made up for your absence. Yeah, I'm, I wish I could have been part of the John Aretzi interview because I listened to Pro Wrestling Spotlight back in the day, and I listened to it now on Arcadian Vanguard Network the, uh, when they go back and look at past episodes. So haven't had a chance to read the book yet, though, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm back, man, back in the, uh, the co-host seat, and you said 10 years or starting in our 11th year. I'm starting on year number, I believe this is before. I started, I came on with you in, like, 2018, so... Yeah, you celebrated the third anniversary and working on year number four. You joined the family. I mean, uh, it's great to have you. I mean, we've done some good stuff here since you've uh, come aboard. And of course, you and George are are very much rock solid members of the the, of the fraternity here. And it's going to be an interesting next few months. I mean, along with uh, uh, Thunderblood, Charlie Norris, too. There's going to be some talk with him and a few other uh, guys that wrestled up for uh, Eddie Sharkey's company, uh, Pro Wrestling America. We we might have a little sidebar show with that here coming up in the spring and summer uh, so many things to look forward to but you know we can't get past this week my friend because th- no no the book uh, the guest we uh, we were bringing on today we just finished both of us uh, finished uh, the book and that we're going to be talking about and boy what a great book it was it was so raw and so real and revealing and but yet at the same time we were able to enjoy and, and get into some of the great anecdotes and you know good 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 memories too but it takes you on a ride and boy uh, what a life she uh, has led and she's still here to tell the tale uh mike and it's a it's a great book it's uh we're going to bring on uh, a guest today uh mike you want to do the honors because you you got the booking uh, the, the the book is fantastic but i want you to do the full intro my friend but i was just giving a little sizzle here i can do that man i'm very proud to have these guests one is a returning guest he's been a uh, oh, yes. guest on the show many times uh, but the book we're talking about today is Princess Victoria, A Tale of Tears, Triumphs, and Turnbuckles. As you said, you and I both had a chance to read it this week. Not your typical wrestling uh, autobiography. We're going to discuss that with our guests. But uh, first, let me introduce the authors of the book. First off, we have, returning once again, Mr. John Cosper. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure, guys. Good to talk to you again. Always good to have you back on, John. It was only a few weeks ago we uh, were talking about the Chris Candido book, so I just want to say, hey, welcome. I didn't forget you, my friend. No, no problem. I'm glad to be here, like I said. And then, of course, our other guest, the subject of the book, uh, none other than Miss Vicki Otis, known in the wrestling ring as Princess Victoria. Vicki, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate y'all having me on. It's our pleasure to have you on. Like I said, Glenn and I just finished the book this week. Uh, amazing read. Uh, very, very hard uh, read, too. I mean, you, you're very honest, and I appreciate the, uh, you know, you telling your story, because I think your story, especially, you know, your childhood, is something that readers need to listen to. We're going to discuss that. But uh, first off, I'm just going to start off with uh, your career, like you said in the book. It was short. You were only in the ring for four years left the ring due to an uh, injury in the ring in 84. Uh, but your story, how did you come to decide to sit down and write this book? And how did you meet up with John and kind of just the, the origin of the book? Well, the origin of the book was actually uh, about 1999. It was after uh, I found my sister who was given up for adoption at birth. And we had gotten into a discussion of uh, our, both our childhoods, hers having been because she was adopted out, not knowing, you know, where her roots were. 
and then mine, unfortunately, knowing where my roots were, um, she she started bugging me. She said, "Vicky, you really you really need to write this book." And the book did not start out as a wrestling book. Um, there's a lot of hard truths in my book, and anybody who gets ready to read it should be prepared for that. Uh, I didn't pull any punches. This this book is a straight shoot. Um, I know that during my childhood with the things that happened to me, I tried to commit suicide no less than five times. Uh, fortunately, I'm still sitting here, and I was not. that was the one thing I was not successful at. Um, and the book kind of sat in my computer for about 10 years, and I, was, I had hooked up with somebody who said they were going to help me get it published, and 18 months later, when this person hadn't done anything, I contacted Scott Teal, who is well known for uh, being a co-author on many wrestling books. And he told me, he said, Vicki, he said, I'm busy for the next two years. I said, do you have anybody I can talk to? He gave me two names. One was John Cosper, and I immediately private messaged him on Facebook. And I believe it was within, what, about five days, John, when you got back in touch with me? Uh, I, I don't remember exactly when, but it was, it was fairly quick, yeah. Yeah, and within, I, I believe that was around October of last year, and between mm -hmm. October and today, uh, John Cosper has, he's made, he's made a dream come true, because I, I, I really, there's a lot of kids out there and I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm talking adult kids as well as kid kids that uh, are probably going through a lot of the same things that happened to me, and I'm hoping that they get to read this book so that they know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that they don't have to make a permanent solution to a temporary situation. Now, when you started, you said this book's been going for 10 years. When you started writing this and you were writing down just, you know, what happened with, you know, during your childhood, uh, was that therapeutic for you? Would, did that help you kind of just with the situation and what happened all that? Was it something that was good for you at well, the time to talk about? Well, there was, well, what, what, how that really actually started was first, like I said, my sister, Mary, she kept telling me I needed to write a book. Um, then one day my husband sat down, he looked at me, he said, Vic, he said, I love you. He said, but if you don't go get some help, I'm going to have to go. And his reason for that was I was going through some serious, serious walking live flashbacks. Um, I do understand what our veterans say when they're talking about they're in the moment. Uh, a flashback you're there, you're, if this flashback goes back to when you were 10, your, your mindset goes right back to 10. You can smell, you can feel, you can taste, you can see. You are in that moment. And the flashbacks I was having uh, were not pretty. And I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and I was taking it out of my husband. And of all, of all the people in my life, that was one man who did not deserve my anger. So when he said, you know, you got to do something or I got to go, the next day I made about 50 phone calls and I uh, found a counselor. And from the first day of me going to this woman, her name was Amy, uh, on the second time I went in, my husband went with me. And she looked at me, she said, Vicki, she says, you know, I've got about 250 clientele. She said, can I tell you how many of those, their spouses or their significant other is in this, come in this room with them? Or, or do you have an idea of how many of them? I said, well, at least 50%. She said, no, ma'am, your husband is the only one out of all of my clients that have, brought, have come in with my patient to help them you're one lucky lady. And then it went from there. Once once I got into the counseling, I started writing writing and it was it was kind of therapeutic because when I first started writing, 
at the moment that I started writing, I couldn't remember anything. Not one single solitary moment, the good or the bad, from the time I was 14 years old back. I had literally lost 14 years of my life. And when I started writing, it was like this little window in my brain started opening up. And the more I wrote, the bigger this window got. And pretty soon it was a door, and it was several doors. And I remember one day I was talking with my brother on the phone, and we were talking about going out in the woods and cutting wood with granddad with snow that was, you know, knee deep. And out of nowhere, I said, yeah, that old blue Ford pickup truck of his. And I started crying. Because before then, I couldn't remember anything. And I could see, literally see, my old, my, the brother that's closest in age to me, he was leaned up against the back of the truck. He didn't want to be there. Me and my, bro, my other brother, we were so happy to be with Grandpa. You know, we're sitting there carrying wood. It, it wasn't work to us. It was fun. And that's one thing that once that door opened up, yeah, I got a whole lot of bad memories. And, you know, I had a lot of work to do. But with the one thing that I am so happy for is with those bad memories, I also got the good memories. You know, I was no longer just focusing on the bad part of what happened in, in my childhood. I could remember Christmases at Grandma's. I could, you know, remember going fishing with my granddad and him reeling in this brim at Horse Thief Lake and about the time he went to get it out of the lake, a dang seagull came down and grabbed it and tried to fly off with it. <laughs> um, and that, that was the amazing part is, you know, like I said, I got a lot of bad memories, but my God, the good memories that I got. Now, for our, our listeners who, you know, I'm sure will be interested in reading your book and as well as I was, uh, without going into, you know, a lot of detail because, you know, we want them to read the book, you know, what was part of your childhood growing up, just to let our listeners kind of know just where this book starts? Well, I'll give you a few, a few key days. There was one day I went to school, and I had belt welts across my face. There was another day I went to school, and I had two black eyes. And when I say black eyes, I mean black, black eyes, and I had a large bump right in between my eyes where I'd been, uh, and I was probably about 10 or 11 at that time, where I'd been picked up and physically thrown into a wall uh, by a man who was probably 325 pounds and six foot tall. There, there, was, a, a lot, there was a lot of abuse in my childhood. Um, it was psychological, it was emotional, it was physical, and it was sexual. Um, any type of abuse that you can think of that a child went through, I went through, and so did my brothers. Well, I'd like to thank you, one, for, you know, writing, for telling your story, because I'm hoping, like you said, that someone out there is going to read this book and, you know, it might help them or allow them to be able to help somebody else. Because so. it's a tough story to tell, and, you know, a lot of people, like you said before we were started talking, if one person if, if one person listens to you and can get some help from this, then you know I think you've done just an amazing job. And I, I I'm not looking at the amazing job. I'm looking at the if one person takes that step forward instead of sitting down in that corner and giving up, then everything that I went through in my entire life has been worth it. All right, now, John, when, uh, when Vicki reached out to you about, you know, Scott Taylor recommended you and she reached out to you about uh, working on this book with her, what was it about her story that, you know, that got your attention and you wanted to work with her? Because you've worked with a lot of, uh, a lot of guys and all in, in the business and helped write their books. What about this story attracted you? Well, it was uh, really it was the first chance to, to, to work with one of the ladies from, you know, that's that, that still around and able to tell her story. I, I've been working on and, and actually just got Elfira's Snodgrass's biography out last year. Um, so, so I was excited for that. 
Um, you know, I, I, I read a little bit about Vicky over the years and in some different magazines when I was working on different, different things. And, you know, after I saw what she had already written and, uh, we kind of, kind of started talking and started hearing some of the stories that she tells, you know, I, I've been, I've been very lucky to, to, to work with so many great storytellers and man, Vicky's another one of those that, you know, she, she's got great memories. She, she hung around with, with names people love to hear and, you know, and, and, and folks, you know, has really great memories of her time with, you know, up, up in the Pacific Northwest and also the WWF. But um, I, I will say, you know, like I said, when, when I read, you know, the stories about her childhood, I mean, it was, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to read through and, and edit, but uh, it's such an important, important story. Um, you know, I, I really felt honored that she trusted me with it. And, uh, you know, it, it is something that, that people need to read. People need to be aware, you know, and it's, it, it, I, I feel like, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, me too movements and speaking out movements and things like that, you know, but you know, there's still people who are just like, I had no idea this went on and it goes on all the time and it goes on everywhere, you know, and, and it's going to continue the the way to perpetuate it and keep it going is to keep it that family secret that you hush up. You don't talk about this uncle. You don't talk about that or whatever, you know, but I mean, people need to speak out. People need to know this is not normal. And, you know, yes, they're, they're, you can survive it. You can get through it, you know, but, but also, you know, we need to call people out and we need to, you know, this needs to stop because, you know, no child should go through what, what Vicky and her brothers went through, you know, and, and there's people that are going through this similar things right now. And um, it's really important to, to make sure that these stories come out and, and make sure that people understand that this is wrong and, you know, when you see something, you've got to say something, you've got to stop and you've got to do something. Um, you know, I've got, I'll tell you, this is really, you know, I had just read through all of Vicky's stuff and um, there was a night my wife and I were driving home. We, we picked our kids up at the friend's house and we were, we were headed home and she spotted, I didn't even catch it, but she spotted what looked like a really bad situation. There was a wife and a husband fighting on the sidewalk and it was very clear. He was standing over her. He was challenging her. He was threatening her. You know, and she stopped, she got on the phone, she called 911, you know, and this guy kept trying to show, shoo her off and, and get rid of her and everything like that. But we stayed there until the police got there. And I, I don't know what, what happened afterwards, but I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that we've got to have done in, in order to stop these kinds of things is, you know, empowering people to speak out, but also making people aware that, hey, when you see something, you know, you know, ask questions, you know, if there's a way you can get in there and help out, you know, you might be saving a life and, and, and who knows what else you might be saving. I want to talk now and bring it into uh, the, how pro wrestling got into your orbit, into your life. Talk about that, uh, getting connected with pro wrestling and what, what, what was it? What was the whole lure of pro wrestling? What did it mean to you when you first saw it? And it, what, what, what got you bit by the, the wrestling bug? Share with us uh, just how pro wrestling came into your life and, and how old were you? Well, the, I probably can't remember the first wrestling match I ever saw. Uh, because Granddad used to have it on his TV. We lived in Wishram, Washington, and every Saturday we sat down in the afternoons. We'd watch, you know, John Wayne Westerns, uh, you know, Audie Murphy. And I bet you a lot of people don't remember that name. Um, Audie M Murphy uh, Westerns, you know, Gunsmoke. But come, come, I believe it was about 7 o'clock every Saturday night, we watched wrestling. And I do remember about five years old, six years old, uh, sitting there with Granddad and Grandma watching wrestling. Now, I was about nine years old. We went to Portland one, one day to visit some relatives, and my cousin took me to this uh, roller derby match in the afternoon. Uh, they wanted to get rid of us kids so, you know, the adults could uh, visit. And after, after the roller derby, which I fell in love with roller derby first, uh, I believe it was the fabulous Thunderbirds that were uh, 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 racing. I uh, can't remember the team they were against, but I can remember the Thunderbirds. But that evening, he took me to a wrestling match. And to this day, I can remember the first time I saw Jimmy Snuka stand on that top rope and he turned into a blasted bat. He jumped up, his arms spread, and he flew completely across that ring and uh, uh, won that match. Well, uh, I, I hope uh, Jimmy's wife, I know her well, 
uh, will forgive me, but I fell immediately in love with Jimmy Snooker that day. Uh, my uh, my cousin took me over. We bought an 8 by 10 and I stood in line. And Jimmy Snooker stood there. I, to me, it seemed like it was forever. Uh, but he, he made sure each and every person that was in that line got an autograph, and I happened to be the last one. And I've still got that autograph picture of Jimmy Snooker. Now, fast forward 15 years, I'm probably uh, 84, uh, fast forward 12 years, and I'm working for the WWF, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. at the time, and we were all headed to California from New York, and lo and behold, somehow I got to sit right next to Jimmy on that flight. And I turned into that nine-year-old kid again, and I'm just sitting there grinning ear to ear. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got interested in wrestling. Uh, now, how I became a wrestler, I got tricked into becoming a wrestler. Oh. I was going, uh, I had gotten my first apartment when I was 14 in Portland, and I started going to matches every Saturday night at Stockwood Sports Arena. And I lost my job one day, and I had been going to the matches, and somehow I ended up, I always bought a general admission ticket, but one day I wore this uh, bright, you know, really pretty chiffon yellow Chinese collared dress and a pair of candies, and all of a sudden my general admission ticket turned into a first row ticket. And I went to hand the ticket back told uh, who I didn't know at the time was Sandy Barr. I said, I'm sorry, you gave me the wrong ticket. He said, no, ma'am, that's where you're sitting tonight. Uh, and from that day forward, I sat on the front row. Well, when you go to the matches, you hang around, you get autographs, you, you start talking to the security guards and Sandy Barr, you know, always friendly. All the wrestlers were friendly. Somehow I became part of that family. Um, one day I lost my job, and I went to the matches that night and told Sandy I needed a job. He hired me on the spot. I'd been working for Sandy for probably three to six months, and one day he comes to me. He says, Vicki, I'm running this, this wrestling training school. I've got a girl who wants to learn how to wrestle, but I can't have her wrestle the guys. Do you mind, you know, being a body uh, so I can show her how to wrestle? I figured, you know, well, hell, why not? About three weeks later, the girl had quit, and all of a sudden I was the one learning how to wrestle. And about a year after that, nine months to a year after that, I had my first match. And it dawned on me I had gotten tricked into be, be, becoming a wrestler. But from the moment that I stepped in that ring to learn how to train, I was hooked. You, you couldn't you couldn't have stopped me if you had a baseball bat from becoming a wrestler after the first time I was in that ring. And you know, once you become the wrestler, you, you get in, you get broken in uh, by by Sandy Barr. Well, it's kind of like you got worked by a worker. That's kind of like that was a, that was quite the initiation to get into the pro wrestling business, uh, and especially by a guy who is accredited as, as Sandy Barr. You you grew up in, in a great uh, pro wrestling rich area of the United States in the Pacific Northwest area with the uh, not only Sandy Barr but Don Owen, the Owen family, uh, you know, doing the promoting as well and. There is just so and much. The I mean, wrestlers. Yeah, there the was wrestlers. Yeah. The sheep herders, Dutch Savage, Buddy Rose, Ed Wiskowski, um, Rip Oliver, uh, Ronnie Piper, uh, Jay Youngblood, uh, Andre even came in. I mean, you're right. I was blessed. When I broke into the business, it was the cream of the crop. And they became a family. You know, I, I didn't realize, you know, standing on the outside, just how tight this family was. And the wrestlers, they became the family I never had. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, in, in Portland as well, uh, you know, 
you, you mentioned uh, some of the wrestlers and a guy I want to mention because it has a tie to Minnesota. Of course, I broadcast out of uh, Thief River Falls, Minnesota. But uh, Jesse, the body Ventura. Now you you got a chance to uh, to meet and and get to know Jesse. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those early days w- with Jesse, who went on to be uh, just such a, a superstar, larger than life personality, a politician, radio host. He's done it all. But I want to talk about you and you when you connected with Jesse. Uh, let's share that just for our Minnesota listeners today. Uh, one, of the main, one of the main memories I can remember about Jesse is after I got in the business, uh, I believe it was Jesse, we were walking down in uh, downtown Montreal. Uh, we just left Gold's Gym. And we were, you know, when wrestlers get together, <laughs> no surprise, you talk wrestling. And somehow we got on the uh, 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 subject of Roddy Piper and his interviews. You know, Roddy Piper was infamous for his interviews because none of them were scripted, and you never knew what was going to come out of that man's mouth. And uh, we were walking, we were in the middle of a crosswalk, walking across the street, and I was telling, I was telling Jesse this story, and all of a sudden he looks at me, and, and you know, when you start telling a story, I'm the type that, you know, if it's really good, I'm going to go right into the character I'm talking about. And I went in and I, I told Jesse, I said, yeah, uh, Roddy did this, this interview, and we were all sitting in the dressing room. He was in the crow's nest, and he, it was uh, Roddy Piper, Buddy Rose feud, and Piper said some part where in, in his interview, he said, yeah. He says, I got enough room in my belly button for Buddy Rose's brain, the heart of a promoter, and a cockroach egg. <laughs> and, we're all, and I told Jesse, we're all sitting in there. And he looked at me when I went to do that, when I did the Piper interview. He says, girl, you do Piper better than Piper does Piper. <laughs> That's a hot high praise. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, you know, there's three things you got to have to be be a professional wrestler to be on top. Number one, you got to have charisma. Number two, you got to have charisma. Number three, you got to have charisma. So for somebody to say that, you know, I did Piper better than Piper did Piper, that you're right. That was high solid praise. Absolutely. And. Uh, Absolutely, uh, to get to get uh, such a compliment from 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 Jesse like that. Before I give it back to Mike, I want to ask about uh, a, a landmark in Portland that uh, the wrestlers always seem to have a story or have some sort of memory, however big or small. Uh, was the, the place where a lot of the boys stayed? It became it was known as the Bomber. Now, do you remember anything? The Bomber Motel. Yeah, do you remember? What are your memories of the Bomber Motel? Because I've heard some stories about that place. But what do you? What can you recollect from from that uh, that legendary spot for for pro wrestlers and pro wrestling fans who are curious about? Uh, it? Wow, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what I can tell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um, <laughs> uh, I can tell this one. Um. There was uh, one night in December, and I, w- I was up at the Bomber Motel. I was uh, visiting with some friends. The midgets were in town. Eric Emery was, you know, there. And we were all uh, drinking beer in uh, Eric's room, and uh, Eric got a phone call. And he looked at me, and he said, Vicki, it's for you, because at that time I wasn't Princess Victoria yet. I hadn't started training. I answered the phone. And it was uh, my biological mother. And actually, it was Sandy Barr, and he was telling me my biological mother had called and that I needed to call her. Well, when I called her, I was told my grandfather was in the hospital. And I kind of freaked out. And Eric looked at me and said, what's wrong? I said, my granddad's in the hospital. I got to go. Well, I'm trying to get my stuff together. And... uh, all of a sudden, everybody in that room stood up. Vicky, is this yours? Vicky, is this yours? And I had five people, including two midgets, helping me get ready to get out of there. They put me in a car. They took me to the uh, to the uh, Chautauqua Sports Arena, 
Sandy Barr the next morning put me on his private Cessna, flew me into the Dallas Court, Oregon. My grandmother picked me up on the runway. We got into the hospital. Uh, I got to say goodbye to my grandfather because about 20 minutes later, when Grandma and I finally got back to Wishram, the phone rang, and Granddad had went into a coma, and he never came out of it. But that's one of the, that's one of the stories I can tell about the Bomber Motel. Like I said, once again, wrestling was a family at the time that I was in. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to bring back uh, Mike McCurdy into the conversation here on this edition of Wrestling Memories. And Mike, I know you have plenty of questions, especially pertaining to the Portland area. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. And I was going to say, you know, the bomber could be, you know, a book of its own. You could just have a book of bomber stories because everybody in that territory at that time has a bomber story or 20 that we can't share. Or 30. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that, the bomber was, you know, like I said, I'm trying to think of a story I can tell. <laughs> uh, if those walls could talk, oh my Lord. <laughs> I say, there, now, there, there uh, something I want to talk about. That will never be written. So there are volumes of stories that will never be written for the stories that the, that the guys and the ladies will not tell. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. You know, Vince McMahon may call it entertainment. But K Save is still alive in Portland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's more alive than people know, I'll say that. <laughs> That's right. Um, now someone I'd like to talk about for a few minutes, uh, you know, obviously he's the one who broke you in, he trained you. Uh, Sandy Barr. I met Sandy oh years ago when he was running the uh, the shows at the flea market in uh, Oregon right. and I knew a lot of the guys uh wrestling now that were trained by Sandy and all that. And Sandy was a great guy. I, I enjoyed talking with him and I heard many stories from some of the guys where, you know, there'd be days at the flea market where, Oh, the gate's not good. Go grab yourself a hot dog from the concession stand before uh, they run out. So, and the guys would do it. Yeah. These boys would wrestle for Sandy for, you know, a hot dog and a soda, literally because they love Sandy. Right. Um, well, can you tell me Sandy a couple, like, a couple stories about Sandy? Can oh, you tell Sandy. a couple stories about Sandy bar? Yes, sir. I can tell you a hundred stories about Sandy Barr. Um, number one, if it hadn't been for Sandy Barr, there would have been no Princess Victoria. Uh, number two, Sandy became the father I never knew. Uh, Sandy never charged me one thin dime for training me, and he he didn't he didn't just put me in the ring for three three weeks, show me how to do a. a, a you know, whatever they call them, these shooting stars and all the new names they got for these uh, falls. He didn't do that. That man trained me for over a year. Um, There was uh, one day, uh, Sandy got tired because I I lived across across uh, Portland. I lived over on 23rd and Burnside, and I have to take the bus to the sports arena uh, for uh, for wrestling practice. Well, wrestling practice was in the morning and the afternoon. And uh, so Sandy finally got somebody else to train with me. Her name was Velvet McIntyre. And she happened to be staying with him and Sherry because she was from Canada. And she was only 18. And Sandy says, well, come on, you share a room with her. I didn't know at that time that Sandy had uh, an alarm system on the house. And uh, I used to, you know, I, I've been on my own pretty much since I was, well, pretty much since I was born, but I was really on my own from the time I was 14. So about the time everybody goes to sleep, I'd sneak out the bedroom window. And the damnedest thing would happen is I'd be out there walking the streets of Portland, you know, just going to find something to do, go find my friends over on Burnside, and one of the wrestlers would pull up. And it was every single time that I snuck out of my house. Well, Eric Emery finally smartened me up on it about five years ago. There was an alarm system on the house, and when I opened my window, the alarm would go off in Sandy's room. Sandy would get on the phone to the bomber, and he'd call one of the boys, Eric, whoever, you know, Piper, Buddy, whoever, he'd say, that crazy bitch is out on the road again. Would you please go pick her up? Oh, that's great. Um, 
did you ever have a chance to, uh, obviously your friendship with Sandy and, you know, as a mentor and a father figure, did you ever have any, uh, give or no spending time with the boys, you know, art and all that. Cause I mean, you know, Sandy's oh kids were, you know, also in the wrestling business and Art Morrow is one of the greatest, you know, art technicals back in that time. Yeah. Well, Art and Sean were about 12 to 14 years old. As I recall, when Velvet and I were living there and, if I chase, if Velvet and I chase those two boys out of our room once, we tra- chase them out of our room a hundred damn times. Then little snots would go in our room and try to steal our underwear. <laughs> All righty. Um, here's a classic Sandy story. Um, every morning when Velvet and I moved in with Sandy, every morning we had to get up at the crack of dawn. Sandy would give us a a glass of orange juice, and this wasn't store-bought. This was fresh squeezed from oranges. We drank that glass of orange juice, and we had to go run for five miles. Well, Velvet and I both smoked cigarettes at the time, and about three, four weeks into this run, we were kind of over it, and we found this little alcove where we could go sit on a bench and smoke a cigarette. And we're sitting there smoking a cigarette, and out of freaking nowhere, you hear, that don't look like no running to me. And here comes Sandy in the car. And from that day forward, that man would follow us for five miles as we ran in his car. Wow. Um, another name that's, that's mentioned in your book, and, and this one kind of got my attention because another a man I know as well who also has a great story in the wrestling business that I think should be told. And that's Moondog Moretti, uh, Ed Moretti. You got to work with him in uh, mixed tag matches, and you had a couple great stories with Ed uh, in your book. But what was it like getting to work with Ed Moretti? Because, you know, my experiences with him is, is he was such a great guy. And once you met him, if he knew you, you were kind of a friend of his for life. He treated you like yes. he's known you since day one. Yes, that was Ed. That is Ed. Um, I got I got blessed. I saw Ed in uh, it, at CAC in 2018. I hadn't seen him in better than 30 years. Um, Ed was the best of the best, and is the best of the best. Um, he, he he used to ride with me and Velvet. Him and Terry Adonis used to ride in my uh, uh, <coughs> station wagon when we worked for Al Taco, and he also. Ed was, if I'm not mistaken, I had my first match in Idaho with Ed Moretti at his at his promotion. Um, Ed is one of the nicest guys you can ever meet. But uh, oh, Ed! Ed walks with a limp, and uh, he's got one leg that's shorter than the other, and he walks with a pretty pronounced lip. But uh-huh. don't don't let that fool you. Because that man, that man is like a squirrel. He he'll walk up one side of you, tap dance on your head, and, and jog down the other side. And one day, um, thanks to Al Tonko, who for some reason he thought it was a good idea to book the towns 250 and 300 miles apart. So not only did we wrestle once a day, we spent six to eight to ten hours on the road, and. We're in my station wagon, and we're on top of the Hope Slide. And I don't know, uh, a lot of people may not have heard, but in Canada in about 81, uh, the side of a mountain came down, and it buried the town of Hope. And uh, when, we went, when we went to go, uh, this was the only way to get from one town to the other unless you could go over this road or you could take a detour that take you 15 hours out of your way. So we're going up this road, and all of a sudden, this road turns to a one-lane dirt gravel road, pea soup fog, and the only thing they had marking the side of the mountain, which was two miles straight down, was those little tiny flags that you get at, like, Ace Hardware. And they're about three inches long on a little little piece of metal. So Ed Ed gets out. He's walking beside the car, so I don't drive off the side of the mountain because you can't see five foot in front of you. I mean, that's how thick the fog was. And Terry Adonis is riding on the front of the car to make sure I'm not going to drive straight off the curve. 
And Velvet, of course, is inside because Terry and Ed were gentlemen. And all of a sudden, I looked over and Ed was gone. Velvet looked over, Ed was gone. And both me and Velvet screamed because we thought Ed had dropped off the side of the mountain. And uh, I go to jump out of the car, and here's Ed laying down beside the car, and a damn fool had tripped and fell right beside the car. We thought he was dead. Now, mentioning Velvet McIntyre, uh, you actually went in, you, you went to after Portland, you go to the WWF. Uh, I believe Vince McMahon Sr. still has it at this time. I'm not sure where Junior was at this point. But you were the uh, uh, Women's Tag Team Champions. Yes, sir. We were, we were the first WWF Women's Tag Team Champions. Um, that, as usual, Vinny, Vinny is rewriting history. Uh, he claims there's another uh, pair, I can't remember their names right now, that are supposed to be the first w, you know, World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions, but that's not true. And 99% of the fans know that Velvet and I were the first Tag Team Champions for WWF female. Now, you know, your wrestling career wasn't, you only wrestled for four years, and it was your time in the WWF with Velvet as the Tag Team Champions. This is where you had your injury that, that uh, you know, to put you out of wrestling. What exactly happened in that match? Because like you say in your book, well, a lot of people think they've seen it, the video of it, but actually it was a different match where it happened. Yes, it, uh, the match everybody thinks I broke my neck in was on September 1st, 1984, and I believe it was at the Phil It was right outside the Philadelphia Spectrum. Uh, there's a little side place because uh, the match everybody's looking at was the same night as Michael Jackson uh, 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 thriller tour. Um, and no, that's not the match I broke my neck in. Uh, it, the match I broke my neck in was probably September 6th, and I cannot remember the time, name of the town right off the top of my head, but it was also in Pennsylvania. And what happened is a young lady picked me up, and I can't remember if she was going to pile drive me or hang me in the corner, but she picked me up to uh, do that, and unfortunately, she tripped, and she stumbled, and she sat on my on my neck, on my head. And I did not know at, the, at that moment that my neck was broken, but that's what, that's, that's the only time that anything ever happened in that match that I can point to uh, where it, I could have broken my neck. Now, after the injury, and, all, and I know uh, in your book, you helped uh, Cameron Starr with the uh, Oregon Wrestling Club. Have you stayed involved in wrestling? Do you, do you still kind of keep an eye on, like, you know, the current product and what's going on now since over the years? Well, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, I did up until about 1987. I, I, of course, watched WWE, and then Vince had this thing in Kuwait uh, that almost had me putting my foot through my DLP, and I quit watching WWE at that time. But as of about six years ago, uh, maybe eight years ago, I got back involved with wrestling. Thanks to Facebook, believe it or not, I uh, got back in touch with a whole bunch of my family. And, yeah, I go to the independent wrestling. Uh, I, I, had, I was at Cameron Stars uh, first uh, uh, promotion here in uh, Portland. Uh, one heck of a promotion. Uh, trains people the old school way, and he was trained by Sandy Barr. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Cameron Starr has transferred to Las Vegas, and he's no longer promoting in Portland, but there is blue-collar wrestling in Portland. Uh, I plan on, on uh, going to see a few of their shows here in the very near future. Uh, I also went to BCW, I believe it's VCW in Norfolk, Virginia, when I lived out on the, on the East Coast. Um, I've seen... Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of the independent wrestling is they're coming back around. They're coming back around to old school wrestling, and they're listening to the fans. And that's what the fans want. If you listen, if you put your ear to the ground and you listen to these fans, they want old school wrestling. They don't want this entertainment crap. They, they don't want, you know, and I don't mean TNA as a promotion, but I mean TNA as referred to women, 
they don't want to see all that. They want to see women wrestle. They want to see men wrestle. They don't want to hear you talk for 20 minutes and then wrestle for five. They want to see you wrestle for 20 and maybe talk for five. And a lot of the independent places are, are going back to old school wrestling. Now, in 2018, you were honored by the CAC with the uh, with a Women's Wrestling Award, and you were also part of a panel uh, discussion there where they were talking about, at that time, which was a hot topic, was uh, the fabulous Moolah. What was it like to be honored by the CAC? Because it's an amazing organization. And how did that panel discussion go? Uh, being honored by the CAC, um, well, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, when Brian Blair contacted me and said, we want to put you in our Hall of Fame, I actually went, why? I said, Brian, I only wrestled four years. You got people like Velvet McIntyre, Joyce Grable, Judy Martin, Leilani Kai. You know, you got women wrestlers like that, uh, Despia Montagas, that, that, that wrestled for 8, 10, 15 years. Why do you want to put me in there? Um, and he said, because that's where you belong. And one, I, to this day, I can't, I can't believe that they gave me that honor. And it is a great honor to be recognized in the Hall of Fame at California Alley, or Cauliflower Alley Club. Because to me, that's a, that's a real Hall of Fame. And uh, it brings tears to my eyes any time that I go back and uh, think about the, the dinner and them honoring me in their Hall of Fame because that it was so unexpected. It it came out of nowhere, and I, I'm still I'm still puzzled as to why, uh, why why me? Uh, Joyce Grable was in there, but Judy, Judy Martin needs to be in there. Leilani Kai needs to be in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I I am really really grateful that that they considered my time in wrestling worthy of being in a Hall of Fame. Now, to go from that to Mula, ha, talk about a hot tag. Uh, the conversation about Mula, you got a lot of women with bad taste in their mouth from Mula. Uh, Judy Martin's got a bad taste. Leilani Kai's got a bad taste. Judy, uh, uh, Velvet McIntyre, myself, uh, Judy Martin tried to sue uh, Lillian Ellison, a.k.a. the fabulous Moolah, because once she quit working for Moolah and she got copies of her old paychecks for when she was working at Moolah's, she found out that she, she wasn't getting half of her pay. And I don't mean the percentage that Moolah used to take. From what Judy figured out is if you got a check for $500 for a night, Moolah would take 250 off the top, tell you you made 250 and then take 25% off that, plus the $300 a month rent she charged you, whether you were living in one of the houses or whether you were on the road. But what Snickers and Vinny have tried to do with Moolah, I do not agree with. No, Moolah was not a nice person. No, Moolah was not an honest person. Uh, but if it hadn't been for her breaking into the business back in 1949 and going through what she did in those times, uh, there, there wouldn't be a Judy Martin. There wouldn't be a Joyce Grable. There wouldn't be a Princess Victoria. Uh, and I, I don't agree with them trying to erase her uh, from wrestling history, she she has she has a spot in hit in our history, and you know Snickers Snickers said, well, we're not going to back this if if uh, you if you call it uh, the uh, fabulous Mula, what was it, eight woman battle royal? Uh, it was the battle royal WrestleMania. Right. All right. Well, then they need to quit backing uh, Babe Ruth. Uh, 
they need to quit backing all these baseball players that have been arrested for drugs, that have been arrested for beating their wives, that have been arrested for DUI, you know, uh, been arrested for, you know, unlawful uh, with a minor. Uh, they need to quit back in NFL football for the same exact reason. If you're going to erase Moolah because of the person she was, not because of the wrestler she was, but because of the person she was, then there's a whole other load <laughs> of sports people that need to be erased from the history as well. All right, John. Uh, well, first off, uh, Vicki, thank you for joining us. Uh, once again, thoroughly enjoyed your book. Uh, Thank you for, you know, telling your story. And as far as the story goes, John, how are people going to, our listeners able to uh, order a copy of uh, Victoria's book? Uh, actually three ways. Um, it will be available on amazon.com this weekend. Uh, you can order it through my website, eatsleepwrestle.com. You can get signed editions. Now, Vicki and I are um, almost opposite ends of the country. So just like I've done with, with, with Tracy's mother's book and, uh, with Johnny Candido and Candido's book, she's uh, we've got some sticker label that she she has autographed that will be in the books along with my signature. So you can order them to my website, eatsleepwrestle.com, and uh, I believe Vicky's going to have some. She'll be signing and personalizing uh, that you can contact her through Facebook in order once once she's got some in, as well as her. If you haven't seen her Dreamcatchers, she's making uh, they, they they look absolutely amazing, and uh, I know that's something she's she's really proud of and. Um, a lot of fans are really enjoying those. So uh, three ways. You can find Vicky on Facebook. You can order through Amazon.com, or you can order it with all my other books through EatSleepWrestle.com. And, Vicky, how can uh, the listeners find you on Facebook? Uh, it's under Vicky Otis. It's V-I-C-K-I-O-T-I-S. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm in Pasco, Washington. Uh, when, you, when you bring up Vicky Otis, of course, there's going to be several of them. Mine is a picture of my son and his wife on their wedding day. Uh, contact me. Uh, friend me on Facebook. Uh, uh, private message me. Like, like John said, I'll have the books. I will be personalizing the books, you know, however you want them done. Uh, one of my friends, uh, uh, Darla Staggs, will be getting one. Uh, $2. She's a great lady. Uh, she's looking forward to it. Uh, also, like John said, I'm doing the dream catchers. Uh, once again, just contact me on Facebook. All right, Glenn. Um, I kind of monopolized the conversation uh, on today's episode, but I'm going to pass the mic back over to you. Hey, no worries. It was fun to sit back and listen uh, to you guys uh, talk and just converse about so many topics here. And it was such an honor to have Vicky on the program. But it is time. The timekeeper's giving me the, the signal. I want to say a big thank you to Vicky Otis, a.k.a. Princess Victoria, and John Cosper, her, co her author, co-authors of a great book, Trail of Tears and Headlocks. I do recommend you go check that out. Yes, for John, for Vicky, for the Grizzled Vet, I'm Glenn Brockett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories. <laughs>